And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, grab one of those in the pew in front of you. That's on page 829, Matthew 23, page 829. So in about the last 10 minutes or so, I've been called the wrong name by a co-worker. I've been told that there's another co-worker out there saying I'm preaching, so they're loading up the bus to go to a different congregation. Uh, And then I was told that uh, any preacher can make somebody fall asleep, but it takes a special preacher to make somebody throw up. So this morning, if you missed that, that happened too, so... Love you guys, too. All right. All in good fun. I appreciate it and love you guys. Evan, you're out there. I heard about it. Uh, Okay. Uh, Matthew uh, chapter 23. Uh, We taught this lesson in Matthew 24 a couple weeks ago, but there was a lot of stuff going on in the auditorium. You may or may not remember that. Uh, So we're going to try and do the the same lesson uh, again, not go quite as much. We will skip some verses and try to uh, cover the the main points of it because it is an important topic that we want to talk about and realize and uh, recognize what all is going on here. And all of this stems from, if you haven't been here uh, or haven't been in a while, we had a great study of the book of Daniel uh, for the last uh, several months and uh, wrapped that up. And in Daniel's ten, Daniel chapters 10, 11, and 12, um, there was uh, a vision that really bothered Daniel and some things that he did not really understand. And he had this interaction with some sort of uh, spiritual being, perhaps pre-incarnate Christ, certainly a high-ranking uh, angelic-like being of some variety. Okay, so he had that, and uh, Jesus references that, uh, I believe, in Matthew chapter 24, so that's why we are going to be eventually in Matthew 24. Uh, and all of that's important to say, uh, because some of the things that some of our religious friends think, especially people who are, if I just categorize them in this way, you, you may... This is probably not even a word that most people really throw around today, but it is certainly a belief that a lot of people have today. The idea of being premillennialist or people who think that we are still living in the times before there's going to be a thousand year reign of Jesus here on the earth. So if you hear things like premillennialist, if you hear about a thousand year reign, uh, words like the rapture, the antichrist, the tribulation, uh, people who believe those types of things uh, look to Matthew 24 for one of the things, one of the passages that they look to to support that idea. So we want to See what the Bible says about it, okay? And we're not going to take the time. This is not an exhaustive study of that idea. Uh, but in Matthew 24, I'm, I'm going to be confident to say that in Matthew 24, it's not talking about anything related to premillennialism. And if we look at it closely enough, we'll be able to understand that pretty clearly, okay? Uh, and there may be other times to study other passages that they, uh, those, our religious friends may use for that. Uh, but we're not going to do that tonight, Okay. Uh, in my heading in my Bible of Matthew 24, and just is just reminders and stuff that I said last two weeks ago, but I don't remember what you heard because there was a lot of stuff going on. Uh, in, in my Bible, above Matthew 24, it says signs of Christ's return, signs of Christ's return. And I mentioned to you uh, that I use the New American Standard Version most of the time, and that is a translation that was put together mostly by a group called the Lachman Foundation. And on their website, uh, they readily admit that they are premillennialist, okay, that they believe in a, uh, a future physical reign of Jesus upon the earth for a thousand years. So the reason I bring that up to you is to, as a reminder to tell you that if it's not the actual words that were the inspired words, then there's some possibility of some manipulation would be one way of saying it. Uh, for them, I don't think they're meaning it to be manipulative, but they believe in the thousand year reign and they believe that Matthew 24 is talking about such a time. Uh, so for them, Matthew 24 is about signs of Christ's return. Uh, I don't believe the Bible teaches that, and I don't believe that this is what this is talking about. So to, to me, that's mislabeled, and that is not from God. That's not the inspired word. It's not what this is talking about. Uh, so 
for a reminder for us to be studious and cognizant of what our Bible says versus what the actual words of Scripture say. And those things don't always match up, okay? And that's, that's a hard thing for us to wrap our minds around because when we think about the Bible, we think that's just, you know, we can believe anything and everything that's in there. Um, and if it's God's Word, if it's the verses, the words that God through the Holy Spirit inspired people to write, then absolutely we can believe that thing, those things. Uh, but if it's study notes in your Bible probably are most of the time very helpful. But let's just remember that those study notes in the Bible are not the words of God. If it's, you know, headings for chapters or sections of Scripture, probably most of the time can be very helpful, but let's remember and recognize those are not the words of God. Those are words of man. And sometimes it's possible for them to be mislabeled. In my opinion, to to label Matthew 24 as signs of Christ's return would be a mislabeling of what's going on here. Okay, uh, so just, just think about those things. So if we think about just setting the context, we'll actually start in Matthew 23 and verse 34 here in just a moment. Uh, but in Matthew 24, um, to set the stage for it, let's understand and, and let me again remind you that in Matthew 21, is, it's a Sunday, okay? It's the, the triumphal entry. You'll remember that, right? And as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem for his last week of life, the triumphal entry, uh, the people are shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. On Friday of that same week that we read about starting in Matthew chapter 27, they're saying, crucify him, crucify him, right? So in this, this week's time frame, whether it's the same group, different group, a little bit of each, uh, Jesus' popularity and his... Uh, the support that he has from people changes drastically, right? Uh, so, so we recognize, we understand that. Uh, here are some things that happened during this, this last week of Jesus' life, okay? Uh, he enters Jerusalem on Sunday in Matthew 21. He overturns the table of the temple. He upsets the chief priests and the scribes by accepting recognition as the son of David. His authority is challenged, and he challenges the authority of the other religious leaders. He declares that he is the stone which the builders, specifically the leaders, the religious leaders, rejected. But sinners, tax collectors, and prostitutes have accepted. So the religious people who should have recognized Jesus as the Messiah, they've rejected him. They're the reason that he's going to be crucified. But then on the other side, you have sinners like tax collectors and prostitutes who have willingly and readily accepted. Jesus as the Messiah, as the Lord, as even the Lord of their lives. Uh, He's the chief cornerstone. Uh, He questions the priorities of of anyone and everyone, especially people who have uh, more ties to the earthly concerns than they do to heavenly concerns. He answers the Sadducees, a religious group, and he says this about them, a a group of religious leaders. And imagine the seriousness of this. He says they don't understand the scriptures. Okay? Uh, If if the preacher doesn't understand the scriptures, there's a problem with that, right? Well, the Sadducees are basically a group of teachers, preachers, that kind of thing. And Jesus says, you guys don't even understand the scriptures. That would be a pretty big insult uh, that he levels at them. And then on the other hand, he also exposes the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. They understand the scriptures, they just don't live by them. Okay, they're teaching the right thing. They're just not doing any of it. Okay, Uh, so you got two different groups, the main two religious leading groups in the Judaism uh, religion. Uh, One of them doesn't understand scriptures, at least in some form or fashion. The other one teaches right, but doesn't live according to it. Uh, So problems on both sides. And then he pronounces judgment upon the Pharisees and specifically upon Jerusalem. And this is where we begin to set the stage for the context of Matthew 24. Not only is he pronouncing judgment upon the Pharisees as a group of people, but he pronounces judgment upon Jerusalem as a place as a city okay let's read that in matthew 23 starting in verse uh, 34 
On account of this, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Okay, those last two words, extremely important to think about. The context, who is this going to happen to? This generation, this group of people that are alive during this time, okay? Verse 37, so he says that about the people, and now he's going to say about the place. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather you, uh, your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you did not want it. Behold, your house is being left desolate to you. For I say to you, From now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, this idea of this house being desolate. If you think of Jerusalem, what's the most important house in Jerusalem? The temple, right? So the temple is going to be made desolate. What does desolate mean? Empty, uh, uh, not only of people, but perhaps even of importance or of relics or of anything. It's just, it's desolate. When you think about desolate, you probably think about like a, a desert. There's nothing left. There's nothing there. It's of no value. So your house, the temple, is going to be left uh, desolate, okay? So again, this is a, a significant issue, and he, he's been pronouncing these, these eight woes. You probably heard that before, the eight woes upon the, the Pharisees. Uh, that's what happened at the end of uh, chapter 23, and what we just read about, the kind of the wrapping up of that, uh, that all these punishments are going to come upon this generation, and your house is going to be laid, laid desolate uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, and then they're, they're leaving the town after he's been doing this, starting in Matthew 24, and it says, and coming out from the temple, so he was in or around the temple when he was pronouncing these woes to the Pharisees, Coming out of the temple, Jesus was going along. So Jesus is just walking along. And his disciples, this doesn't say apostles necessarily, but some of the people who have committed themselves to be disciples of Jesus, okay? There were certainly more than just the 12 apostles. Some of his disciples come up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he answered and said to them, Do you not see all of these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Okay, so they come and, and uh, as they're leaving, the disciples remark about the temple buildings. Now, Matthew's account, they just say, you know, look at the temple buildings. If you look in the parallel accounts in Mark chapter 13 and verse 1 and Luke chapter 21 and verse 5, specifically they say, isn't the temple beautiful? Isn't this temple just amazing, Jesus? And what does he say? He doesn't remark on the beauty of it. He doesn't say, yeah, that's a nice place. What he says is, there's not going to be one stone left upon another. Okay? A shocking statement. This is going to be a shocking statement. Again, in verse 2, he he insists that this punishment that's going to come upon Jerusalem, and he even clarifies it by talking about what kind of punishment it's going to be, what kind of destruction that it's going to be. When he says to his disciples, perhaps to the apostles, and certainly if other Jews would have heard it, uh, this would have been a shocking statement to them. You know, this would have been so shocking that it would have not, you know, they think about the Messiah, uh, the Jews of the Old Testament and the New Testament, they would, they would think of, and they were looking for a Messiah who would bring about a rebirth of the Jewish nation. You know, the Jewish nation, uh, Israel is under uh, Roman occupation. So specifically for them in that time, they're looking for someone to come and overthrow uh, the Romans, okay, to, to kick them out of Jerusalem and to re- return to the, the might of the kingdom during kings like David and Saul and Solomon and, and the strength that they had during that time. So Jesus, who his disciples think is the Messiah, they're expecting him to come and restore the might of Israel. And what does he say? 
Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, the temple, the most important building in all of Israel, is going to be destroyed. Okay? To them, that would not only mean the end of Jerusalem, that would not only mean the end of Israel or the end of Judaism, it would be the end of the world as they knew it. And they're not okay with it. They're deeply, deeply bothered by this. Okay? Uh, so Jesus, in some ways, he has some, uh, he has some explaining to do. He's made a bold statement. We, we probably don't even just appreciate just how bold it would be. It would be something like if someone said uh, that the White House is going to be destroyed or the, uh, you know, the, the place where the Congress meets is going to be destroyed or the Pentagon. You know, it would be something like 9-11 happening again. Something terrible like that, that we would think, you know, what, what is going on? What is happening? How in the world could something like that ever happen uh, to us, to our capital? That it's, it's even more significant than that because not only is it a national thing, it's a religious thing. The, the symbol of the presence of God dwells in the temple, and that temple is going to be destroyed. Okay? The end of the world as they would have thought about it, okay? The end of, of Israel, the end of the Jews in many ways, uh, the end of the world as they would, would think about it. So Jesus has some explaining to do. And when we're thinking about this, especially in reference to folks who would think about different things than, than what we would probably believe, uh, we need to really understand what the disciples ask in order to understand uh, Matthew 24, okay? So Matthew 24, verse 3, here's what it says. Uh, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, so he's come out of the, the, the temple, the, the disciples in verse 1 talk about, hey, look at this beautiful temple, isn't it awesome? Jesus says there's not going to be one stone left upon the other, and then there's, there's a break here, and he probably, you know, is going out of the gates uh, to get to the, he's going to be on the Mount of Olives, to get to the Mount of Olives, he's got to go down a hill, cross over the Brook Kidron, and he's going to go back up the hill, and there's the Mount of Olives, okay? So he's, he's made this trip, and probably the entire time they're walking, as the disciples are walking alongside him, they're like, what in the world, what did Jesus just say? What's going on? I don't understand. How is this possible? Uh, and then in verse 23, again, or in verse 3, uh, and as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Okay, now I think we, we can understand what, what they're asking there. But if we think about their primary concern, if we look to the parallel passages again, which also record this, it, it helps us to really understand what are they really, really most concerned about, okay? Mark chapter 13, verses 3 and 4 says, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. So in Matthew's account, it just says the disciples come to him. In Mark's account, it says Peter, Andrew, James, and John come, come to him. So specific, some more specifics. And he says, tell us. When will these things be? And what will be the sign when all of these things will be fulfilled? Well, what things? What things have they just talked about? The destruction of the temple. Jesus, this is shocking to us. When can we know these things are going to happen? What are the the signs going to be? In Luke's account, Luke 21, verse 7, they questioned him saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Now, in Matthew's account, it it does seem as if they they, they ask about uh, the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. So there seems to, perhaps in Matthew's account, uh, to, to his recollection, to the people that he talked about the, the situation, maybe there is some, some, I would say, a secondary concern and probably, now let, probably not even a question they understand what they're asking, okay? When you hear what's going to be the signs of, of your coming, what do you think about? Well, you and I think about the second coming of Christ, right? Well, Jesus hasn't died yet much less been resurrected, much less ascended to heaven. And we know that the disciples, up until the time that he dies and resurrects, don't understand that he's going to die and be resurrected. So I don't think they can be asking here, hey, Jesus, what's the sign of your second coming? Because they don't even know he's going yet. Okay? 
So that the context helps us to understand that that's at least not their primary concern. Now, Jesus talks about that in Matthew 25, and he gives us some information, but I don't know it's actually what the apostles are asking for. They are primarily, perhaps only concerned about when is the temple going to be destroyed? This sounds ridiculous. I don't understand how this is going to happen. I don't, I don't get it, Jesus. Their primary concern for sure is from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When are these things going to happen? You're talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. You're talking about the destruction of the temple. When are these things going to happen? So we have Jesus' response. And here's where we're, like I said, we talked about a good bit portion of this uh, a couple weeks ago. So I'm not going to dig into all of it. Uh, read the passages. If you have questions, we'll talk about it. But I'm going to uh, summarize what happens in a few verses, okay? Uh, so Jesus' response we find in Matthew 24, verses uh, 4 through 14. In verses 4 and 5, he, he tells them, hey, don't believe everything that you hear. Uh, there are going to be some people who are going to come. Okay, and again, think about where they're at in their mindset. Uh, they, they still don't get Jesus is going to go. They certainly don't understand he's going to die. They don't understand the idea of the resurrection. Yet even though he's began to try and teach them some of these things, they still, it's the last week of his life and they, they still don't get it, right? They still don't really grasp that this is what's going to happen. But he tells them some other people are going to come and claim to be the Christ. Some other people are going to come. Don't believe everything you hear. There will be people who are going to come and claim to be the Christ. Some of them will even claim to be this Messiah that you want that's going to overthrow Rome. He warns them and says they're only going to mislead you. Don't follow them. In verses 6 through 8, he tells them that things are going to get bad in and around Jerusalem before its destruction. Okay, And he's going to say that these are only the beginning of birth pains. Okay, Uh, and, And this idea is that... You think about giving birth, ladies, you know that you have pains that, that come and, and they, uh, they, you know, is it Braxton Hicks, is that what it is? So those are their false signs that you think that you're going uh, into labor, but you're not into labor yet. I think in some ways, if Jesus would have had that terminology, he might have used that terminology. It's just the beginning of birth pains, but that's not the destruction yet is what he's going to go on to say. And he says, things are going to get uh, even worse in and around Jerusalem. But these are the beginning of birth pains. They're, they're not yet the time of what I'm really talking about here, of the destruction of Jerusalem. And we have from history, uh, the history between about 30 AD to about 70 AD, we know that things get really bad in and around Jerusalem, but this Jerusalem isn't destroyed yet. Here's some things that we know from history, okay? Uh, Tacitus whose name I probably butchered, uh, tells us uh, some history of the time between 30 and 70 AD. He says that the history of which I'm entering, as, as he's kind of summarizing this, he says the history of which I'm entering is a time period rich in disasters, terrible with battles, torn by civil struggles, horrible even in peace. Four emperors, so emperors of Rome, fell by the sword. There were three civil wars, more foreign wars, and often both at the same time. So he's not talking necessarily just about Jerusalem. He's talking about the Roman Empire in general. It was a violent time between 30 and 70 AD. Josephus, who was a Jew, who was a historian for the Romans and, and other historians as well, uh, this, described this time as being um, described Historians of the time describe the very disturbed state of Judea during this time. Uh, Massacres of the Jews were perpetuated at Caesarea, Alexandria, Babylon, and Syria. Specifically, the Jews were punished because of this. In Acts chapter 11 and verse 28, it references a famine that's going to happen. And we know from history that this famine ravaged Judea, specifically the area of of Jesus and his disciples in Jerusalem, Israel, uh, during the time of Claudius. Uh, again, which we read about in Acts. More than 30,000 uh, die of pestilence in Babylon, uh, in parts of Judea and Rome in, uh, before AD 70, and all of these things, and probably much more, but we have all of those things in history. All of these things are going on, but Jesus says these 
signs are happening, but it's not yet talking about what Jesus is talking about when he says there won't be one stone left upon another, okay? In verses 9 through 13, he says things are going to get much worse, even specifically for Christians, Okay, that there will be a tribulation, that there'll be murder, that they'll be hated. And that because of this persecution, some will fall away being led by false prophets. Maybe those same false prophets that he already warned about. Hey, there's going to be some people who claim to be the Christ. Don't listen to them. Don't listen to what they have to say. Uh, And then we get to verse 14. And here's where we'll kind of pick things back up again. And and let's read some of this. Okay, here are some things to look for as he's been talking about. Here are things that that are going to happen. But this is not what I'm talking about. It's going to be bad and it's going to be bad for Christians. And there's going to be some persecution. But that's not what I'm talking about when I say there won't be one stone left upon the other. And then we get to verse 14 and he does begin to say, hey, here are some things to start looking for. Okay, and he says this and this gospel of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in the whole world as witness to all the nations and then the end will come okay now again probably most of the time maybe because of of, of where we're at when we say the end will come what do we think about we think about judgment day we think about the end of the world that type of thing that's probably not even the the understanding that the apostles had because they're not thinking about heaven yet they're thinking about this messiah being a messiah who's going to bless the jews on the earth Okay, restore the kingdom, all those types of things. In some ways, even the disciples, even the apostles of Christ are pretty earthly minded. Okay, that these blessings are going to be here on earth, especially if you think about the Messiah restoring the, the nation uh, of Israel. Um, but, but here he's saying that these, what's going to happen before the end, uh, that the, the gospel of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in the whole world as witness in the nations. Okay, in Colossians chapter 1, we referenced this again last time, but I want to just reference it again. Colossians 1, 21 through 23. All right, let me back up. It's a lot going on. I want to make sure I'm talking right, okay? Before the end will come, what is that verse that we just read said? That the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed in the whole world. Before the end comes, whatever end Jesus is talking about, before the end comes, um, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed in the whole world, okay? Now, again, we today look at that and we can see maybe why some of our religious friends say, well, the gospel hasn't been preached to everybody yet, the gospel hasn't been preached to uh, people in, in faraway nations or in, in tribal areas. The gospel hasn't been preached to everyone yet. So Jesus can't be talking about anything but the end of the world. And the end of the world won't come until the gospel is preached to all creation. I can kind of understand where they could come up with that idea. Okay? Uh, I don't think that's what it's talking about. But I can understand where they can get to that point. Uh, and so I, th- I don't think in Matthew 24 we can continue reading and it won't say that. But then we also look in Colossians. And we can read this, okay? Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. Colossians 1, 21 through 23. And although you were formerly alienated and enemies in mind and in evil deeds, but now he reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Okay, so there he's talking about uh, Gentiles. Okay, he's talking to these, this Gentile church and he's saying, you used to be uh, alienated. You used to be not connected with God. The Jews were the only people who had a relationship with God. But now because of Jesus, even you have the opportunity to come and have a relationship with God. And in verse 23, it says, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly grounded and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard okay what have they heard they've heard the gospel which was proclaimed what was proclaimed the gospel which was proclaimed where in all creation under heaven of which i paul was made a minister now again to us sometimes that would be a hard thing for us to wrap our minds around but it's the inspired word of god and god said that the gospel had been preached throughout the entire world what did that mean 
What did Jesus mean when he said that, that the gospel of the kingdom, uh, in verse 14, uh, proclaimed, must be proclaimed to the whole world as witness to all the nations? He's probably talking about what those first couple of verses that we read in Colossians chapter 1 said. That this idea that the, the gospel of the kingdom, the relationship with God, would be made available not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. It would be made available to everyone. I don't know, it, it certainly doesn't spell out specifically that what Jesus means is every person alive has to hear the gospel. Okay, will that ever happen? I don't know. Okay, it's a good question. It's a challenge for us even. Uh, but, but I think what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 24 and what Paul is saying that the gospel has been proclaimed throughout the whole world is this idea that the church and the message of the gospel of Christ has been made available not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And again, we've talked about this before, but for the first 10 years of the church, the only people who were Christians were either native Jews or people who became proselyte to Judaism, okay? So they would be Gentiles who became Jewish, and then after they became Jewish, then they became Christian. So for 10 years, you know, in Acts chapter 2, when the church starts, for the next 10 years or so, the only people who became Christians were people who were native Jews who learned about Jesus and obeyed the gospel of Jesus, or proselytes from whatever other religion they were to Judaism, and then eventually, remember, you have Peter has the vision of Cornelius and they go and to Macedonia and all of those things. And, and God has to reveal to Peter just in a way that he could not miss that, hey, this church is for everybody. And he opens it up and the gospel is proclaimed to the whole world. Okay, to everyone. It's available uh, to everyone. Now, Colossians is written about 61 AD. uh, So God, through the inspired apostle Paul, says that the gospel had been proclaimed in all creation by 61 AD. So we have two choices. Uh, If if the end that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24, verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom shall be proclaimed to the whole world as witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Colossians says that in 61 AD, by that time, the, the gospel had been proclaimed throughout the whole world. So we have two options to understand what Jesus is saying. Either the world came to an end in 61 AD, which we're still here, so that doesn't make sense, right? Or uh, Jesus is referring to the, a different end. And what I would say as we continue to study, I think it will come even clearer, is the end of the Jewish nation. The end of the temple being destroyed. Now, why do I say that the temple being destroyed would be the end of the Jewish nation? We're going to get to all this in a minute, but this is important, and I don't know how far we're going to get through everything tonight, so we'll see how it goes. In AD 70, uh, the Romans are going to come and destroy the temple in Jerusalem. And not only are they going to destroy it, they're going to to desecrate it, Uh, they're going to take uh, all the the valuables out of it, they're going to put all their uh, idol images in it and sacrifice, unholy sacrifices, and just do uh, terrible things, okay, abominations, okay, in the temple. But not only that, they're going to take away the records of the priesthood, okay, the records of the priesthood, the records that would say, all right, this family is a part of the tribe of Levi, and since they're a part of the tribe of Levi, they qualify to be priests in whatever form that is, okay? Priests that serve in the temple, priests that serve in synagogues, priests that serve in any number of ways, okay? So they took those things, and today, and since that time, the records of the priesthood of Israel have not been around for people to say They can absolutely identify that this group of people, that this family is a part of the tribe of Levi. And if they can't do that, then they can't follow the old law anymore. So when Jerusalem is destroyed in AD 70, not only is the nation of Jerusalem destroyed, the religion of Judaism is 
inhibited significantly. Okay? They can't, they can't have priests anymore, which means they don't have priests to offer the sacrifices that they're commanded to offer in the right way. Okay, so this is, this is not just a, uh, a one nation attacking another nation, but the repercussions of that also affect the religion uh, of Judaism. And this is, a, a, of course, a significant issue, okay? Uh, and then we get to verse 15 through 20. Let's, let's read that, and we really get into some of the things where we can understand. And here's what we're trying to understand, okay? Specifically, we think about um, the second coming of Christ. Is Matthew 24 talking about the second coming of Christ? Starting at verse 15 of Matthew 24, it's really, to me, pretty clear there's no way it's talking about the second coming of Christ. Okay, so let's read verses 15 through 20. Uh, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, and then it, there's this parenthetical comment, let the reader understand. Well, what does that mean? Well, I probably need to understand what Daniel is talking about so I can understand what Jesus is talking about, okay? That's why we're here, because we've just studied what Daniel talked about, and now we're here. In Daniel chapter 9 and Daniel chapter 11, uh, this, this, this phrase or certainly this event, the abomination of desolation, is referenced in Daniel far, far long ago, and now it's coming to fruition, not yet in Jesus' day, but Jesus is further prophesying about when it's going to happen and what all it means. Okay, so uh, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken through the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, well, what's the holy place? Well, what have we been talking about this entire time since the end of chapter 23? The temple, okay? When the abomination of desolation is in the holy place, the temple, even within the temple, you know, you have the holy place and the holy of holies. So specifically, he may be talking about the holy place. Uh, then those who are in Judea, Judea must flee to the mountains, okay? See the abomination of desolation, flee to the mountains. Verse 17, whoever is on the housetop must not go down first to get their things out of, out, out of their house. And whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his garment. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing baby in the, babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. Okay, so here uh, we begin to really understand uh, that this can't be talking about the second coming of Christ as we understand it. Again, even contextually, the apostles are not looking for a second coming of Christ because they don't even know he's leaving yet. So I only think contextually they can, we can get that. Uh, but even on the other side, we can understand the differences between what Jesus says about this abomination of desolation or what's coming uh, and what we know about the second coming of Christ. Let's, let's continue to look at it, okay? Uh, so what's the abomination of desolation? That's a big question. Uh, a lot of people have asked that question throughout the years. What is it talking about, okay? Well, what are you supposed to do when you see it, okay? This will help us to understand maybe what it is if we understand what's our reaction to it, okay? Well, what are you supposed to do? Flee. Uh, don't go back into your home to get your things. Don't go even go downstairs. You just get out of town as quickly as possible. It says specifically, flee to the mountains. And then he says, pray that it doesn't happen when you're pregnant or having babies or during the winter or on the Sabbath. Now he says not on the Sabbath because the gates of the city are closed on the Sabbath. Okay, so now all of those things, there's four things there. You're pregnant, you you're, have babies or you're nursing babies. Uh, it's winter time or during the Sabbath. Why would that make a difference? Because all of those would make travel more difficult, right? Ever been on vacation with kids? All right. Uh, you know, half the thing is the, the pack and play and the diaper bags and all the extra stuff. I mean, just imagine traveling with a baby and, and fleeing, not just traveling, but fleeing from something that is, even Jesus says, hey, get out of town. It's, this is a scary thing. Flee. Okay, so not when the, the gates are closed because people are going to be uh, less willing to open the gates on Sabbath because you're only supposed to travel a certain amount of time. 
Uh, not when it's winter time, because that's going to make travel difficulty and difficult, and you're not going to be at home anymore. You're going to be out in the mountains, in the exposed mountains during the winter time. You don't want that to be the case. Uh, not when you're when you are pregnant, because that's going to make travel or running away difficult, and, and not when you are nursing babies, because that would also uh, make it make it difficult. Okay. Uh, so right here we begin to see that this cannot be talking about the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ, Judgment Day. Uh, we know for sure that it'll happen like a thief in the night. And that running from will accomplish nothing, right? When Jesus returns, is it going to matter if, we're, if we flee to the mountains? Mm-mm. There's, you can't run from the second coming of Christ. You can't run from judgment day. But whatever Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 24, he says, hey, Jesus tells them, run, flee, get out of town, escape while you can. Now, again, if we look at the parallel passage, we can really understand what this is talking about, okay? In Luke 21 and verse 20, Instead of saying, when you see the abomination of desolation, Jesus says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Okay, so when you see the armies coming, okay, get out of town. When you see the armies coming around Jerusalem, flee. Get out as quickly as you possibly can. Okay, because her, her, her desolation is near. Again, he, and back to chapter 23, I'm going to leave your house desolate when you see the desolation coming what i've just warned you about when you see it coming get out of town again you can't do that uh when when jesus is coming for the second time okay uh verses uh, 20 and 20 21 22 uh, for then there'll be a great tribulation such as not has a such as such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever will and unless those days have been cut short no life would have been saved but for the sake of the elect those days will be cut short verse 21 specifically is almost a direct quote of daniel chapter 12 and verse 1 okay it's almost a direct quote when he says uh, for there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now this being whoever it is that's talking to uh to daniel and daniel 12 perhaps pre-incarnate Christ. And if it is pre-incarnate Christ, then Jesus has already told Daniel this, and now he's telling uh, the apostles this, that, they, that at this time there's going to be a tribulation like nothing uh, the Jews have ever seen. And you think about the Jewish history, they've seen a lot of things, right? They've experienced a lot of things. And Jesus is saying, and this being told Daniel, it's going to be worse than anything you've ever experienced. Think about uh, the story of Esther. Why is the story of Esther such a big deal? What does she save her people from? annihilation right remember Haman wants to wipe out the Jews throughout the entire empire and Jesus is saying there's going to be something that's even worse coming your way okay and again what's even worse than that well it's the end of the the nation it's the end of them as a people it's the end of their religion it's the end of their world as they know it the the Jewish nation the Jewish religion has never been the same there's still there's a there's a nation of Israel today right but it's a vastly different nation than the nation of Israel we read about in the Old Testament. Uh, you know, think about e- just a, a, a few things that you might think about, okay? Uh, one thing specifically that you might think about. Uh, there is something on the Temple Mount today in Jerusalem, but what is it? It's a mosque to Allah. It's not even a temple to their God. It's a temple to a foreign God, okay? The, the Jewish nation, the Jewish religion has never been the same since AD 70 when Rome comes and destroys and fulfills Jesus and even Daniel's prophecy uh, about what's going on here, okay? Uh, So things are about to get even worse. Uh, And here again is the answer from history. Uh, The abomination, this is what I would say history proves the abomination to be, okay? Uh, The abomination is the Roman Empire 
And the holy place is in reference at least to the holy city of Jerusalem. And Jesus says that they are going to cause it to be desolate. He's already warned them that, and then he's given them some more detail about it, okay? We know this from history. The conquest of Galilee, the conquest of of Israel uh, begins in 67 AD, uh, so about, you know, 30, 35 years after Jesus is is gone, and culminates in 70 AD when the Romans uh, siege, when with the Roman siege of rebellious Jerusalem. Here's some details. Here's some things that happen. Outside the city of Jerusalem, hundreds of Jews are crucified. Inside the city, there's a civil war that breaks out between the Jews with several factions spending more time fighting each other than standing against the Romans who have surrounded their city. Uh, The temple courts, the temple, the place of God, the place where the the Spirit of God is supposed to dwell, the his home. The temple courts are awash with blood, but it's not blood from sacrifices. It's blood from battle and mostly battle in amongst themselves. Uh, the siege results in famine within the city so bad that his history tells us that mothers eat their children. There's pestilence, starvation, uh, slaughter, and monstrous atrocities were commonplace in and around Jerusalem and certainly Israel. By August of AD 70, 1.1 million Jews had fallen by the edge of the sword and 100,000 had been led away captive into all the nations. A high percentage of the city's population was killed and enslaved during the fall of Jerusalem. And from that day on, from that time on, the nation of Israel, the Jews as a people, have never been the same. Let's go down to uh, Matthew 24 verses 32 through 35. We're going to stop here tonight and talk about another thing uh, probably next week. And then hopefully we'll, we'll wrap up this, this line of thought. Matthew 24, 32 through 35. I skipped over verses, um, a few verses there and, and we'll, get, we'll hit this next week. But I want to just briefly tell you, after he talks about this and talks about the, spe- the specifics of uh, you know, being surrounded by the armies and the opportunity. Hey, when you see that coming, you, you get out of town, you flee, you run as quickly as you can. He's going to begin, and again, in my opinion, to introduce a new line of thought. And this new line of thought, I think he's answering a question that perhaps the apostles haven't even asked. I'm, I'm not convinced that the apostles are asking for the second coming of Christ, again, because they don't understand the leaving of Christ, okay? So I don't know that they're talking about that, but I do think Jesus talks about that. I think he is taking this opportunity when they're concerned about the destruction of a physical place, he's going to tell them, hey, there's going to come a time where there's something even more important than, than this coming desolation, than this coming army to surround Jerusalem. And I want, you, I want to tell you about that. So I think he begins to introduce that uh, around verse uh, 23 and following, okay? But for tonight, let's, let's wrap up with verses 32 through 35. It says, now learn the parable from the fig tree, okay? When its branch has already become tender and it puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near, okay? So he says something that w- they would understand, okay? Take a lesson, learn something from the fig tree. Uh, when you see... Uh, that it's, it has become, its branch has become tender and it puts forth its leaves, that's an indication to you that summer is near. I think that I mentioned this last time, but I'm not sure. Uh, the dandelions, we talked about that at some point. Um, a couple weeks ago at this point, uh, dandelions started popping out all over the place. You've probably seen them. Again, in South Carolina, where I have lived in the upstate of South Carolina and the middle part of the northern part of South Carolina, we don't, that doesn't happen. I've never witnessed that. I've never seen dandelions and, and I mean, I'm sure I've seen them at some point, but I've never recognized them the same way that it happens here. Because the two and a half years that I've been here, so the two springs that I've been here, I've recognized, hey, dandelions are coming up. Springs are going to be sometime soon, right? So, the, so he's saying, 
listen, when you see that the, uh, the, the, the leaves are coming forth on the fig tree, you know that summer is near. So we understand that very clearly, right? It's the exact same kind of parallel. When I see dandelions in Cookville, Tennessee, I say, hey, it's going to start warming up soon. Okay, hopefully. Uh, it's going to start warming up soon. I'm, I'm expecting that. The end of winter is coming. Spring is coming very near. In the same way in Jerusalem, apparently, they could look at the fig tree and they notice when the, when the branch becomes tender and the leaves start shooting out, summer is near. Okay, so there's a sign that you can see. Okay, so he says, learn the lesson, learn a parable from the fig tree. Uh, verse 33, so in that same way, you too, when you see all of these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And then in verse 36, he says, but of that day and hour, no one knows not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. So he's saying, look, there are some signs that you can look to for what's going to happen in Jerusalem, okay? About this this desolation that I'm promising you. And even when it says, uh, when when he comes, you know, that that makes us um, go back to verse uh, 30. Verse 33, uh, so you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Now, again, there's this, when well, he is near, well, who's he? Well, your he there is probably capitalized, so you think probably uh, the Lord, and that, that's, that does complicate things a little bit, I'll be honest with you, but the idea of the, the day of the Lord, when, again, when we hear the day of the Lord, we probably take, think two things. The day of the Lord is the Lord's day. We reverse it, and we probably think Sunday. Or the day of the Lord, we probably think again, the second coming of Christ, okay? And that is a way to understand it. But we also have to recognize that throughout the Old Testament, especially any time that there was a coming punishment, it was often referred to as the day of the Lord, okay? Now this, this group, whether it's Israel or Babylon or Assyria, there were multiple times when the day of the Lord was called and those were times when those groups would be punished, so what I think he's talking about here when he says that he is near, it's not talking necessarily, it's not talking about uh, the second coming of Christ. It's talking about that when you see these signs, you know that this is coming. And again, specifically, when you see the army surround Jerusalem, get out of town because things are about to get really bad and you don't want to be anywhere close to it, okay? Um, but in verse 36, he references a different day. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. You, there will be things that you can see for the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in AD 70. But of another day, he's introducing another idea here that we'll get into more next, next week. Uh, nobody knows. There's not going to be any warning. Remember, he comes like a thief in the night. And uh, he's going to talk about that in Matthew 25, okay? So what's the application for us today? Uh, two things. Uh, there is no direct, direct application to us when we think about the abomination of desolation. Now, that's a big deal because, again, our religious friends who think about, who are premillennialists, who think about a tribulation, who think about a thousand-year reign, who think about a rapture, they are looking for the abomination of desolation. The abomination of desolation has been, uh, or, and that would be closely related to the idea of the Antichrist. Okay? And throughout history, the Antichrist has been identified as multiple figures. And throughout history, all of the figures that have been identified as the Antichrist have been proven to not be the Antichrist. Okay? Another topic for another time. We'll get into it, um, maybe. Um, but but what, what we're thinking about here is that there is going to come a day when Jesus is going to return and we need to be ready for it. And the difference is this abomination of desolation that came to Jerusalem, there was a warning sign, at least one. 
When you see the armies come, get out of town. When Jesus returns, there's not going to be any warning. Sometimes that's scary, isn't it? Does that, does that scare you at all that you don't know when Jesus is going to come? I think for probably a long time in, in my faith, there was probably a little bit of, you know, concern about that. And, and even, even the idea of, you know, and this is not wrong, but even the idea of, hey, you better make sure you're ready for that day. Hey, you better make sure you're ready. And hey, you better make sure you're ready. Okay. But if you're a Christian, you don't have to fear that day. Remember Paul and other apostles, they say things like, come on, Lord, let's go. I'm ready for you. Uh, there's, there's a word that's, that's used, and it's one of the only words that in, in my version of the Bible that's not uh, translated, and it's Mar- Maranatha, O Lord, come. And it's this idea that Paul is saying, God, I am ready for you. I'm ready for the second coming of Christ because that means we get to be with God eternally. So when we think about, yes, we do need to make sure that we're ready for the second coming of Christ, but how do you do that? Again, it's not because of your performance record that you're gonna get to be with God forever. It's gonna be because of your complete reliance upon his righteousness. Your righteousness will not get you there because you're not righteous enough to get there. Jesus had to die so that his righteousness could be given to you. So yeah, be ready for that day. But being ready for that day doesn't mean that you are perfect because you're not perfect. Being ready for that day means that you fully lean into, I need God desperately. And because of that, and because of your acceptance of what he has told you to do, and yes, your obedience to the gospel, you have been made holy, and because of that, you live your life differently. Yes, your actions absolutely matter. I will never say that they don't. But your actions will never get you to heaven. Only your reliance upon God and Jesus and his righteousness and his grace will get you to heaven. That will change your life completely. And because you want him to be your Lord, you'll do everything. You'll do the best of your ability to do everything he wants you to do. But even if you did everything he wants you to do, you've already sinned, so you don't deserve to go to heaven. The only reason we get to go to heaven is because of God's grace. So be ready, because one day when we don't know, there will be a trumpet that will sound. And one of these days, I'm gonna have a trumpet in the back of this auditorium and we're just gonna blow it. Scare you guys a little bit. One day it's gonna happen. And Jesus is going to come back, and I'm not afraid of that. I'm looking forward to it. And if you're not ready for that day because you're not a Christian, why not become one tonight? And if you are a Christian and you know you're not living your life in the right way and you've wandered away from God, get that right tonight. If you need to come forward and let us know that, then come forward and let us know that. If you need to say a prayer to your God, confess your sins, and be forgiven of those things as a Christian right now, then do whatever you need to do to make sure that you're fully relying upon God to save you from hell. If we can do anything for you tonight, we invite you to come as we stand and sing.